Go ahead and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13. We're winding down our time in the book of Hebrews, and we're looking forward to being able to move on to another book, but it's also always good to finish strong, and we look forward to finishing strong by just uh, recognizing the different descriptions of love that are found in this book. The theme of love is what Hebrews 13 is all about. Hebrews has been ex- explaining to us the, great, uh, the greatness of Christ and the superiority of, of Christ to everything else. And now it tells us that we should hold fast to him. And if we're going to hold fast to him, then Christ will produce three attributes, faith, hope, and love. And if he is producing the characteristics of faith, faith is expanded upon in Hebrews chapter 11. We all are aware of, of that. Hebrews chapter 12 talks about our hope, our confident expectation, even through suffering and difficulty. And Hebrews chapter 13 is the great chapter in Hebrews about love. And that love is being described for us and and expanded upon in verses 7 through 17, which is our focus tonight. Would you stand with me, please, with reverence for God and his holy word? I'd like to read Hebrews 13, beginning with verse 1, so that we can see the entire context. We'll read down through verse 17. Let brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. Marriage is honorable among all in the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do unto me? Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried about with various strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But do not forget to do good and to share for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief for that would be unprofitable for you. This is the word of the living God. Would you please be seated? When he talks about letting brotherly love continue, it feels like he's just kind of left that and got into kind of a smorgasbord where he's just throwing a bunch of thoughts and ideas together and that we have to somehow sort them out. But really love or the theme of love is what unites this entire passage. There are plenty of descriptions of love in the New Testament. We have descriptions of agape love and we compare that to philos. Philos is the brotherly love and And so we say that agape is better than philos, and certainly agape is better than storge. Storge is that familial love or something that you would have as an affection, as as a close friendship. And then, of course, there's eros, and eros love is that marriage type of love that has become defiled in the world. But we often look at those words and we say, ah, compared to all of these different things, we are to strive for agape love. We hear that regularly. Agape love is described for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 
Love believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. And, of course, we have great admonitions for love, by which Christ said that we are to love one another and so fulfill the law. He tells us that other people will know that we uh, are his disciples because we have love for one another. And yet we're also told that love is not just a poem. Love is not just a definition. Love is something that is to be not only expressed in, in word and in tongue. In other words, we don't just say that we love each other. But he says, but our love should be done in deed and in truth. That means that love is always an action verb. And as an action verb, love is to be seen, is to be evident. And love is also to be evident, not only in our hospitality, in our marriage, in our brotherly love and care for each other. But love is to be seen in our relationship with each other when it comes to leaders in the church. So when we have this perfect picture of love in action, especially love in action in the church, Verses 7 through 17 describe for us how that love and submission, leadership, how they all come together. And so this is really something that I hope as you read it and as you've read it, maybe you just don't see any continuity to it at all. But hopefully as we spend a few minutes in it, you'll begin to see the continuity. First of all, I want you to see the love that is found in the consistency of faithful leaders. In verse 7, in the consistency of faithful leaders, we have a a remembrance of those who rule over you. The word rule over you is describing leadership, and that leadership is the oversight. We understand that he is describing here the function of elders in the church, and the function of elders in the church are really twofold. They are to be there to be leading, and they're to be teaching. Really, the lead and the teacher are, are carried about in the one picture that is dominant of elders, and that elders are supposed to be shepherds. In the book of First Timothy, First Peter five five, Acts chapter twenty number of different references, we have a picture of those that are elders in the church who are not primarily to sit as, uh, as judges behind a desk as a Supreme Court passing judgment, condemnation, or affirmation. They're not supposed to be function primarily that way. They're supposed to function primarily as shepherds. They are to shepherd the flock of God which is among you. They are to serve as shepherds, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain. And they're supposed to shepherd the flock of God. And and as shepherds, you would recognize that that picture is coming back to an Old Testament picture of leadership by which even Old Testament leaders were called to be shepherds. And by the shepherding that he's describing, he's describing those who will lead them primarily and those who will feed them. The leading of them is found in this passage where he's talking about their oversight. And within that oversight, there is uh, there's governance There is direction, there's guidance, there's administration, and that is part of the function of leaders within a church. Now, we know that leaders are supposed to also be teachers and pastors, but another function is that they are to administer, they're to lead, they're to guide, they're to provide oversight. And in providing oversight, that is what this passage is saying. To say that we are to remember them, to remember them is implying that in this passage, there is someone who's gone away from you. There's someone who's been taken away from you. And my understanding is that he's especially talking about leaders who have been taken away from you in martyrdom. There are some people who have suffered to the point by which they have died. And when they had died, you're supposed to remember them, remember their love for them, lest you go astray and follow false teachers, as we're going to see the admonition about false teaching here in just a moment. So as you're remembering them, there's a sense of honor. There's a sense of respect, a sense of obedience. But more than anything, you're talking about... uh, Uh, a lack of forgetfulness. You're supposed to continue to remember and keep those people in front of you. Now, what's interesting about this passage is he's now admonishing not just about their most recent leaders. I believe that he's talking about the leaders that had been previous generation, including some of the prophets and some of the teachers in the past in the Old Testament. 
And I'm saying, I think that he's saying in this, remember them, and that everything I've been teaching you in this book of Hebrews is telling you that there is a consistency between the message of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Old Testament pictures that we're pointing to a new covenant. So remember Moses, and remember Abraham, and remember David, and remember all of those faithful people who had led before. And now we're not asking you to reject them. We're asking you to remember and follow after their ways. They had been the ones who had provided oversight for you. Here is a description of what faithful leaders are to do. Number one is the leading that I've been describing, the rule over them. By the way, within that, that is why some people come and are able to defend a position by which they would talk about elder rule. They say, are we an elder rule church or a congregational rule church? Our church has chosen not to use that word because the word elder rule carries so much, uh, it carries so much baggage. It carries the idea that they're a bunch of dictators who are just doing their own thing. And we understand that the word rule is not really talking about dictating or ruling in a harsh way, but it's describing leadership. So we use the term elder leadership, and by the term elder leadership, it means that elders are given the, the, the God-given mandate to lead the church. And as they are leading the church and being prayerful and seeking the scriptures as to what they ought to do, then they come to the congregation and they lead them, they guide them, not driving them like you would drive cattle. Instead, they're leading them as you would lead a flock of sheep. And as you lead a flock of sheep, he's describing the tenderness and the care that is there. So, though we reject the term elder rule, I understand the idea that is behind it. And if there is an elder rule by which they're describing leadership through which the elders are recognizing we are given this God-given responsibility to lead and guide, and yet in leading and guiding, we are asking you to follow and they're being careful to direct, that is the idea. Others would say, well, if you're going with the idea of elder-led, then somehow you're forsaking your responsibility to rule, to guide. We want people uh, who are going to be strong and who are going to lead us. And so elder leadership is found this way at Grace Bible Church. It means that the elders are praying and seeking the Lord's direction and, and seeking the Word of God, and they're conferring with one another. And as we are conferring with one another, then we believe the Lord may be leading us and guiding us in a particular path. And so we'll come to the deacons and the other leaders of the church and pass ideas past them and ask them to confer and confirm if indeed we're hearing what the Lord is directing. And when we have that, then we would come to the congregation. And when we come to a congregation and seek congregational affirmation, such as we're doing next week when it comes to a decision regarding a staff member, We're not abdicating our responsibility. We're not passing it off and saying, oh, well, majority vote will rule the day. That is not the idea. The idea is we recognize that Christ is the head of his church. And if Christ is the head of his church who's leading and guiding us, then our responsibility is to find and determine what is his will, what is his purpose, what is his direction. And as we are providing the lead for that, then we come to a congregation not looking for majority vote or not just looking for a form of democracy, but we come saying, this is what we believe God would have us to do. If there's something that we haven't considered, if there's something that we've missed, if there's something that you're aware of, would you please bring that to our attention? That is the whole point of the congregational affirmation. It ultimately isn't coming to a vote. And by the time the vote happens, it's already late. It's already passed. Our whole goal is in two weeks prior to that, we would come and say, is there something that you would notice? And some would say, oh, well, that means it's a slam dunk. It's a done deal. That is not true. There have been times when we have come and we had the idea of, well, here's someone that we think that God would provide as as an elder in our church. And here's someone that we would present as a future elder. We think God is calling that person. 
And then when we present them, someone will come and they say, ah, I have this concern. And someone else might say, I have this concern. And it's not a majority vote that gets them away. It's someone who's bringing something to our attention that we hadn't considered or been aware of. That disqualifies them. And there have been times when we will step back from that decision or from that direction. And we say, that's exactly what we've been seeking. The Lord to lead, the Lord, Lord to direct. And sometimes he does that with other people. So here is this idea. They are to lead. And by leading, they're providing oversight over the people. Not only are they leading, but they are preaching. They are the ones who have spoken the word of God to you. So the remembrance, by that we're talking about the respect, the submission, the love, the admiration you'd have for, is for people who have ministered the word of God to you. And notice what he's talking about here. It's the content. He's not talking about their eloquence. He's not talking about their style. He's not talking about someone that we like for this reason or, or that. Uh, our teenagers have been listening to a couple of different teachers and and uh, I ask them every once in a while, well, how did it go at the IFCA convention? What did you like? And every once in a while, there'll be some who say, oh, I really like that guy who spoke the word to us. And, and I'll ask, well, why do you like him? And, uh, and there'll be certain style issues. Uh, Zeb, I can't remember exactly what was it that the guy at the IFCA convention this year kept saying. Oh, that's good. All right. So he kept saying that. And I kept, I kept hearing from our young people. It was this little thing that he was saying. It's kind of a stylish, you know, trendy little thing. And they all liked him because of that. And I was thinking, ah, that is the sign of immaturity. The sign of immaturity is someone who likes a guy because of a little nuance or a little saying that he uses that connects with a culture in one way or another. And, yeah. But what we should really admire and look for in people who are ministering the word of God to us is people who are faithfully speaking the word. The people who, when after the message is done, you can look at the passage and say, yeah, that's true. That's exactly what that passage says. They don't have to be flashy. They don't have to be stylish. They don't have to be cool, hip, or anything else. They need to faithfully speak the word. And that is what you should be looking for and loving in the leaders that are with you. And that is what a loving, faithful leader ought to be doing as well. Speaking, preaching, speaking the word of God. But it's not only their leading and their preaching, it's their living. He says that you are to follow their faith. The following of their faith is a recognition that their faith is part of their lifestyle. So for someone to say, do what I say, but not um, do, do as I say, but not as I do, that would be totally contradictory. The hypocrites did that. The Pharisees in Matthew 23, Jesus warned about them. He said, do the things that they say, because what they say is good. But watch out for them because they don't even do the things that they say. We need to follow their faith. And that is living the example, living out the model of those that are, are examples. That's not to say that they're perfect. But they are the ones who are following the Lord Jesus Christ and walking by faith. And as such, they're not only leading, preaching, and living, but they are ending. Considering the outcome of their conduct. When it talks about the considering of the outcome of their conduct, he's here talking about their end. Remember them, and remember them, how they provided an example of faith, even when it came to their end. In this case, it might have been martyrdom by which that came to their end. And when you came to the end and they continued to walk by faith and they died a faithful martyr's death, that is certainly something to admire. But not every leader, not every faithful leader is called to martyrdom. There are others that were called to die in simple faithfulness. They become an example of how we are to die by trusting God, looking to God, resting in God. I'm going to use as an example, I know that there's not all perfect examples, but I'm going to use as an example, we have the flowers here today. I'm going to use as an example a woman who served as a leader. Was she perfect? By no means. But Wilna Erickson is an example, at least to me, and I haven't known all about her life, but she's someone who faithfully served as a pastor's wife for 60, over 60 years. And if she served over these 60 years, she's an example to me how to die in that when I would go and visit her, she wasn't complaining about how difficult her life was. She wasn't bellyaching, whining, fussing. 
and says she's someone who is resting in the Lord. You know what she told me regularly? Every time I'd go to visit her, she would say, oh, I'm just ready to go and to be with the Lord. I'm ready to be in heaven. I'm ready to have, you know, this, uh, this battle, this struggle over. And then not only that, but then she would continually, constantly, she would ask me, how's the church going? How can we be praying for the church? What are the issues in the church? How's this issue? How's this couple doing? Whatever it may be. And so she was praying about those things. And then she was always praying for my family. She recognized as a pastor's wife the concerns that my family would have. And so she was praying for my family and caring for them. And when I recognized that, then she gave an example in, in, in her life of how to end. And that is how faithful leaders ought to be. The pastor should be that same way. Now, I'm not looking to die anytime soon, uh, but here's what I do want. I want to be sure that what I say is being lived out in my daily life, and I want my daily life to end at a time when the fruit of the Spirit continues beyond uh, good days and into bad days, and however it is that I may end up ending, I want to be an example. I want to be a guy, and I want that to be something that people are able to remember. I know that Nancy had just lost her mom not long ago, and it was just the anniversary of that. And she's able to look back, and she's able to remember how her mom ended. And boy, what a testimony that was of her mom's faithfulness and her mom's uh, love and care. And you have those examples as well. That is a, a picture of what this passage is saying. There's a the love that is found in the consistency of faithful leaders. But if you don't have faithful leaders, meaning that they come and go, they they die. And if they die, what are you supposed to do? Well, that is where... True love is found not just in the consistency of faithful leaders, but in the constancy of Jesus Christ. Verse 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And now he's telling us that your shepherds may come and go, and you might have to remember them because they're gone. Maybe they changed location. But one thing you can know is that your chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the same day in and day out, and you can continually rest in him. Now, if you're remembering leaders, then also understand that as you remember and admonish, as you follow them, as you respect them, then you also have to remember that, that they're not perfect. And if they're not perfect, there is one that we look to in perfection, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he will always be with us. He never leaves us, never forsakes us. He is always the same. Now, verse 8 is the most popular verse or best known verse of all of the verses that we're talking about. But it is not without context. And the context is telling us that, yes, there are those leaders that are good examples, but there's one who's always the same. And here's the great thing about the Lord Jesus Christ. He provided leadership 2,000 years ago for his church, and he provided leadership 1,000 years ago for his church, and a leadership 500 years ago for his church, and he's providing the same consistent, constant leadership even today. And we continually can rest in him, look to him, and we can find our hope in him. Let me give you an example of how this comes. Some of you have had leaders in the past who enormously disappointed you, and when they enormously disappointed you, it can almost come to a ruin of your faith. I'm not even going to go into some of the examples of of pastors who didn't prove faithful. But you know how that when they weren't faithful and people looked to them, that sometimes faith is destroyed by those who hadn't. Well, our eyes are not to be to just pastors, to leaders, to guides that are over us. Instead, we must look beyond them into Jesus Christ, the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So that no matter who is around you, no matter who is there before you, our eyes are looking to him and he is constant and we can continually rest and trust in him. Well, if Christ is remaining, then we are protected from the next form. And that is now talking about love and submission when it comes to the condemnation of false teachers or untrue or faithless leaders. When he talks about these false teachers, he says, do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines. 
Those who spoke the word, those that lived that word, those that were examples, remember them, follow them. And the reason you're supposed to do so, and especially look to the Lord Jesus Christ, is because there will be some who come and take you away by strange various doctrines. The strange and various doctrines are reminding us that we need to hold fast to two things. Two things will protect us from false teaching. If we hold fast to the word of God that is spoken, are steadfast to that. And secondly, if we continually look to the Lord Jesus Christ, and if we hold to the word of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, those will be the things that protect us from this false teaching. In this case, how is it that false teaching is exemplified or demonstrated? How is it manifest? It is good that the heart be established by grace and not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. He is now talking about some false teachers among them who were preoccupied with food. And that's the dietary restrictions. And basically, as he talks about their food, he's also going to talk about their altar and their tabernacle. And he's going to talk to sacrifices. He's going to talk about leaders who are leading them back into the ideas of Judaism. So no longer are they holding fast to Christ. Instead, they're being drawn back into different expressions of Judaism. Did you know that sometimes when you come out of a certain religion, then there are elements of that that you miss. And when you have those elements that you miss, you sometimes start looking toward the the form rather than the substance. Oh, I liked the chanting and I like the lighting of the candles and I like the I like the food. I like the the going to the sacrifice and the feast that they had. In this case, there was a return to Judaism by these false teachers by which they were preoccupied with food. And here's the here's the teaching of Scripture consistently. False teachers are now concerned about food and ordinance of what you touch and what you eat and what you do or don't do. They're always concerned with the outward things rather than holding fast to the Lord Jesus Christ by grace. Let me just give you a couple examples of that. First Timothy chapter four says the spirit uh, says expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. Just this uh, summer, I had a young man that I was talking to who, again, seemed to be drawn into the type of things by which he thought, ah, oh, it seems so good. It seems so right when they start talking about uh, the food and abstaining from certain kind of foods and being kosher and following these different forms of, of legalism that is there. Look, I'm not telling you that he was definitely getting into forms of legalism. I don't think that it was necessarily false teaching that he was falling into. However, the first sign of false teaching is that false teaching will always be preoccupied with outward things such as abstaining from marriage, abstaining from food. And here's what this passage says. He said, food in this case is given by God and is to be received with thanksgiving. And the sanctification of that food is the thanksgiving to God, recognizing that he has given it to us. We say, all right, give me another passage. Well, here's another passage that talks about the concern that we have over people who would emphasize outward things such as uh, abstaining from food. It's the book of Colossians. In Colossians chapter 2, he was again warning about uh, vain philosophies and empty religion. Here's what he said about it. Colossians chapter 2, and I'm beginning with verse 18. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, not holding fast to the head from from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourself to regulations? 
do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern the things which perish with the using of them, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion, false humility and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Whether it's in First Timothy, whether it's in Colossians or here in Hebrews, he tells us that one sign of false teaching is a preoccupation with outward things such as don't eat, don't touch, don't whatever it may be. And in this case, it is now a preoccupation with outward things. And he said the way to avoid that is to hold fast to Christ. And if you hold fast to Christ, you recognize that all of this religious activity, including the false teaching that was leading the people of Hebrews back into their Judaism and away from Christ, if they weren't holding fast to Christ, then it leads back into all this religion expression, all of this action that contradicts grace. And he said the way to avoid that is to hold fast to Christ. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if Christ is the same, then we need to watch out for those things that emphasize food. They also emphasize the altar. He says, we have an altar from, the, from, uh, from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. In other words, don't think that your Christianity and embracing of Christ and you're holding fast to the teaching that your, that your uh, previous leaders have given. Don't think that somehow you're missing out on the altar, missing out on the sacrifices, missing out on the temple worship. He's saying that we have an altar that they can't touch and we have a certain spiritual food that they can't rejoice in or enjoy. So he says in verse 11, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. He's describing the sin offering. And the sin offering was one of the offerings through which the sacrifice would be given and it would be burned in its entirety outside of the camp. By outside the camp, they take it outside the city walls. The blood was taken into the Holy of Holies. That's where atonement was made. Propitiation was, uh, was won. And so the blood is offered, but the body itself, the food that they're referring to, goes outside. And now he talks about in the same way, he said, we have a greater sacrifice. The great sin offering that we have is Jesus. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. In other words, his blood was taken into the Holy of Holies, the heaven. In the heavenlies, he is presented as a sacrifice acceptable to God. It's not by the blood of bulls and of goats, but by the blood of Christ. And so Christ brings his blood, and then Christ was taken outside the gate. And if he's taken outside of the city, that's where his body was destroyed. And it... Therefore, you're not to be preoccupied with all these sin offerings and sacrifices. Don't return to the altar. Don't return to the food. Don't return to these false teachings. And other, in an alternative to that, hold fast to Christ. And here's what he says. Let us go forth to him outside the camp. To say that we're going to go outside the camp means that we are to remove ourselves from Judaism. And there's not to be this blend. This is the false teaching a blending and drawing them back into the rituals and the routine and certain elements of Judaism, which understandably they had missed parts of that. And they had begun thinking that somehow they're missing something. And they now embrace this Christianity and they miss all of those old ways. They miss the Passover Seder and they miss this and all these other things. And he's coming and saying, no, don't go to those. Hold fast to grace, the message of grace through Jesus Christ. And he says, as you reject Judaism, you are no longer going to be accepted by the altar or by the tabernacle or by the Jewish religion itself. Therefore, if you are going outside of the camp, then he means that you are to go to Christ, the one who is reproached and the one who is rejected. So there's an element by which they missed that former religion, but there's also an element by which they were concerned about rejection by their friends and by their family. 
And if they were concerned about re- rejection by their friends and their family, they kept an appearance of those things. And if they kept that appearance of things, it was kind of like they were believing in Christ, but they were, out, they were inside the closet. They were closet Christians. And now he is saying, come out of the closet, go outside the city, identify with the Lord Jesus Christ, and bear his reproach. To bear his reproach is to, is to feel the same suffering, the same rejection, the same abuse that Jesus Christ had received. And now we're kind of starting to see this fit together. If you remember the leaders that you had before, those leaders spoke the word of God to you. They walked by faith. And when they walked by faith, it seems that they went outside the camp and they were rejected and they faced martyrdom. And in their end, they were faithful unto death. And now you've seen them. And having seen them, you've become a little bit cautious. And you've said, man, those people died for what they believed. I'm not sure I want to go that way. I prefer to embrace some sort of religion through which I can still be accepted to the Jewish culture. I can still enjoy some of the Jewish things that I had. And, and now there's a temptation to, to come back away from Christ. He's now coming and saying, but if you remember that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, then you should go and identify fully with Christ. And when you identify fully with Christ and trust him, remember this, that the suffering of this present world is not worthy to be compared with the glory that would be revealed in us. You said, Jeff, you just read that into the passage. No, look at verse 14. When you go outside of the city, go outside of Jewish religion, go outside of Jerusalem, and when you bear the reproach with Christ, he says, we have no continuing city, for we seek the one to come. The one to come is we're not just looking for identification and acceptance with Jerusalem, this city on earth. We are looking for the acceptance that comes from eternity. And when we look to Jesus, who's the same yesterday, today, and forever, then we also recognize that when we identify with Christ and bear his reproach, when we bear his reproach, we're also looking to that city, that eternal city by which we have full gain from him. This is an expression of our love our love for God, our love for each other, our love for our leaders in submission to what they had said and not abandoning it and going back to false things. And then he says this, here's what your true sacrifice is. Verse 15, therefore by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise. Now we know that there's one sacrifice for sin and that's the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the sacrifice, the offering that we're continually offering to God so that he is pleased is now not the blood, not the food, not the sacrifices that we're talking about, but it's the sacrifices of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But do not forget to do good and to share with, for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Verses 15 and 16 are talking about the true sacrifices. And the true sacrifices that are a demonstration of love are fourfold. First of all, there's the sacrifice of thanksgiving. When we really love God and hold fast to Christ, when we love leadership and are submitting to them, then thanksgiving is something that is characterized. Did you know that always a, work of, uh, a mark of faithful people is their thanksgiving? You have 10 lepers that had been healed by Jesus. How many returned to give thanks? One. One out of 10. You have thanksgiving from David that would, that would say it is good to give thanks to the Lord. If it is good to give thanks to the Lord, then we are to always give thanks to him. And in everything, give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Our thanksgiving and the worship that we offer by thanksgiving is something that is a sacrifice that is pleasing to God. And so when you're bearing reproach, when you're going through difficulties in your identification with Christ, what should you give thanks for? Well, go to Colossians chapter 1 and remember what it is that we give thanks for. Give thanks that you are uh, now brought from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. Give thanks that you have an inheritance that is granted to us. Give thanks. And if you can't think of anything else, go and read the scriptures. And whatever it is, give thanks. Thanksgiving is a sacrifice, an expression of our love. 
Second, there's the public acknowledgement or public witness. He says the fruit of our lips. And within the fruit of our lips, he's really talking about our open allegiance to Christ. Going outside of the gate is the idea. And also uh, bearing the fruit of our lips that says we're witnessing to him. We're aligning with him. And Matthew chapter 10, verse 32 puts it this way. Jesus says, if you are not ashamed of me before men, neither will I be ashamed of you before my heavenly father. This is the bearing fruit and, uh, and being willing to, to align with Christ, even in the words that we say. There's a third offering, and that is our doing of good. Do not forget to do good and to share. For, for the doing good here, we recognize that this is another sacrifice that's an expression of our love, and that is the service. And Jesus described how that should look when he said, I was thirsty, and you gave me to drink. I was hungry, and you fed me. I was sick, and you came to me and visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And they said, Lord, when? And he said, well, when you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it unto me. And that is the doing good. That is a doing good that not, doesn't bring our salvation, but it's an expression of our love, and it is pleasing to God. Then there's a fourth sacrifice, an expression of our love to God that is found when he talks about sharing or generosity. The word share is the word koinonia. And koinonia is not just getting together, patting each other on the back, shaking hands, hugging, talking about whatever it may be. Koinonia is sharing. It's bearing each other's burdens. It is caring for each other in generosity. And so he speaks of that generosity both as a collection. In 2 Corinthians 9, he talks about receiving a collection for those that are impoverished. And then he also describes it in 1 John when he says, when you see a brother in need, don't turn your bowels of compassion toward him. He says, if the love of God is within you, then you ought to have a desire to share. You ought to have a love that is in action. And with such practice, such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Well, our love and our submission is found in consistent faithful leaders. And we admonish, we, we admire them, we respect them. We hold fast to the constancy of the Lord Jesus Christ. We avoid this condemnation of false teachers. And then he comes full circle and he ends in verse 17 with another commendation that comes back to leadership. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive for they watch for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief for that would be unprofitable for you. We could certainly take an entire message and just focus on that. But seeing it in its context is a recognition that is an expression of love our brotherly love for each other, continuing steadfastly in love. Part of our love is this commendation of leaders. And we find two things, the leader and the led. When he talks about the leaders, again, he already commended them for leading, for preaching, for living, for ending. He talked about those that you should look to. But now he's talking about those who are currently with you. And those who currently with you, he says, they rule over you. Again, he's talking about their leadership, their oversight, their spiritual supervision. He's talking also about their watching for them. So to watch out for your souls is talking about those who guard over them, those who who keep watch. And that is, again, back to the idea of shepherds. Shepherds are those who don't just lead and feed when it's convenient, but they're up at night when it's necessary to chase off the predators. Uh, They're the ones who are out in the bad weather, and they're watching out. They're watchmen. They're guarding. And they're doing so because they're accounting. By the accounting, it says those are the ones who must give an account. And so here's what I would agree with the book of James in. Do not have many teachers. And don't be eager to step into that position of teaching or leading or providing oversight because there's a greater accountability. There's a greater responsibility. We have to account to God for the things that he has entrusted to us. Some of you might be into a place where you're saying, oh, man, I'd really like to be a leader in a church. Well, let me tell you to read Jeremiah 33 uh, and to read Ezekiel 34 uh, and to read Psalm 23 
before you ever consider this, because when you start recognizing the accountability, the responsibility by which God says, you are my shepherds and you're supposed to care for the flock. You're supposed to love them, guide them, lead them. And because you have done an inappropriate job, you've been worthless shepherds. As worthless shepherds, here is the judgment that comes upon you. Those are passages that pretty much haunt me when I go to bed at night. I mean, no matter how much I've given myself all day long to meeting with people, praying for people, trying to be faithful, I lay down my my head on the pillow and I start thinking of so many other people, other needs that weren't met. And those things haunt me only from this respect. There's an accountability to God. And then that accountability to God, the only way that I'm able to go to sleep is I lay my head down on the pillow and I say, oh, I still didn't talk to so-and-so. Still hadn't sought with so-and-so. I didn't follow up with so-and-so. And man, this happened and they're going to be disappointed. They're going to be upset. And then the only way I can sleep is to say, but God, Jesus is the chief shepherd. And as the chief shepherd who continually ministers to his people, to the chief shepherd who is there today, yesterday, today, and forever, if he is the chief shepherd, then I'm able to rest and not have such a complex that it just gives me an aneurysm. I mean, there are plenty of times when I think it's going to give me a heart attack or an aneurysm anyway, I mean, bearing that responsibility. But that responsibility that I take is a good responsibility knowing that I'm accountable, but I also rest and recognize that in that accountability, it is him who is there yesterday, today, and forever. He's the only unchanging one, and so I entrust them to him. And I usually fall asleep by praying for you, whoever it is that I've been neglecting that particular day. And as I've been neglecting or missing you that day, understand it's not because I'm negligent, it's not because I don't care. But I'm entrusting you to God, the chief shepherd. And that is the weight and the responsibility that anyone that aspires to eldership at Grace Bible Church should be seeking. This is something not just given to Jeff Anderson. It's Paul Sealing, and it's Mike Schmidt, and it's Roland Bison, and it's John Newland. It's anyone who steps into that responsibility. And when you're stepping into that responsibility, you are not coming in to be a leader. You're not coming in to be a decision maker. You're not coming in to be a board member. You're coming in to watch out for the souls of people. And you're doing so as someone who must give an account. And if you're giving an account, then you need to make sure that you're leading, you're preaching, you're living, you're, in, you're doing all of these things with love. And you're doing this as a shepherd who is accountable to God. You start understanding that when you truly understand this, you should run from this as fast as you can unless you're called. I mean, the only reason you do something like this, the only reason that you would hold this position is not because it pays so well. Paul, you're not getting paid that well. I mean, it's just the, the pay isn't that great. It's not because it's so easy and because people just look to you and respect you and just think so highly of you because you hold the position. Nonsense. You only come into this position because God has called you. God has given you the gifts and the calling and the desire to do such. And as such, you step into it with a fear and trepidation and as an expression of love to God and to his congregation. Then not, not only are we talking about a commendation of the leader, then there are instructions that are given to be not only how you're to be a loving leader in the church, but how you're to be a loving led in the church. And being lovingly led in the church means that you are to submit, you are to obey, and you are to allow, to, to, to allow it to be done as a joy and rather than a, a sad grief and difficulty and hardship. Um, you know, this could be so misapplied. There are some people who would try to use this as lording over the flock or try to use this as, as an excuse to micromanage and control and to somehow justify their egomania. I'm not talking about egomania, and I'm not talking about hyper-control. As a matter of fact, if there's anything that we're guilty of at Grace Bible Church, it is not hyper-control, but sometimes neglect or not providing enough control over certain things. 
I heard of a church a few years ago who had so many church, um, they had so many church programs, and they were so driven to have those church programs to get people plugged in, that whether it was a bus ministry or whether it was Sunday school ministry, teaching ministry, the pastor basically said, hey, man, I'm the one who, you're supposed to obey me, you're supposed to submit to me, therefore, I want you to, I want you to uh, submit a request before you go on vacation, at least a month ahead of time, that way I know where you're going, and we're filling this hole, and, and I heard that, and I thought, man... Whew, that, sounds a little, that sounds an awful lot like lording. That sounds like you've taken this uh, as an excuse and, you, and you've got the wrong idea of this. Well, still, even though we recognize that there are abuses and we need to avoid the abuses that are there, recognize that when there is someone that you can remember, there is someone who's teaching the word, there is someone who's living according to these principles, then remember that we're to submit to them. Now, submission is a mutual thing. I recognize that. But mutual submission does not overcome this reality that when they're functioning in the role of leadership, you are to try to follow them, support them, pray for them, strengthen them. If you in submission want to pray for them, well, that's the greatest thing you can do because God is more than able to change their heart anyway. And it's not to say that you're not to express your opinion. I've already told you as our congregation, we come to you and we ask you, pray about this, seek this, give us some feedback regarding this. But then once you've done that, I rejoice in the fact that I'm able to lead a congregation that's submissive. There's not people who are trying to lead a coup every once in a while. Man, I've been through some coups. They're brutal. That is no fun at all. And I don't, expect, I don't experience that. My leadership in our church and our leadership in the church is a joy. Why? Because there's a submissive spirit, a submissive spirit that trusts. And it's not only submissive, it's obedience. The obedience that he's talking about is an obedience to the teaching. The submission is a submission to our function, our function of oversight and ruling or leading them. And the obedience to teaching is saying, when we're going to the scriptures, these things are true. That's not an obedience by which, again, we become abusive and harsh and ruling. Instead, we come to the scriptures. And if we're speaking the word, then you're submitting to the word of God itself. And that is the only thing, it's the only thing that I would ask you ultimately to obey. I would ask you to obey, not because of a position that we have. I would ask you to obey because of a a principle that we teach and the scriptures themselves. And you're obeying the authority of the word of God. That is what this is talking about. And then he says, let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Oh, there are plenty of places where leadership in a church is not a joy, but it is a grief. Can anyone say amen to that, Wes? (laughs) anyone can say amen to there are places where you try to provide leadership and it is a grief and it's a sadness and it's a heartache and it's a difficulty. Let me just tell you, leadership at Grace Bible Church has been a joy, a great joy. And and there are times when it's been a grief. You've been with me in some of those grieving times, those difficult times that are there. Uh, Some of you have been there. There are times when it's a sadness and sometimes when it's a burden. But man, if we're taking this accountability seriously, Let me tell you something, that that is the only weight and responsibility and pressure that I need on my shoulders. I don't need the pressures of a bunch of griping, whining, fussing people who are always trying to uh, overcome and find reasons to criticize and gripe and and gouge and eat pastor for lunch. We don't need that. That'd be enough brutality. And we don't have that. And let me tell you something, if that were the case, I wouldn't have stayed here. Nancy and I have been here for 20 years And the only reason that we can stay and remain and have no intention of going anywhere after all of this time that we've been here is because it's been a joy and not a grief. And I thank you for that. I thank you as a congregation for that privilege, for that joy. And our elders thank you for that as well. Now, what we'd ask is, can we let love continue and abound continually? Let us love each other and pray for each other. Remember each other. Let us love by watching out 
and not going away in the false teaching, but let us hold fast to Christ, who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Let us love each other through bringing these sacrifices of generosity and sharing, the sacrifices of thanksgiving that we're doing for each other, sacrifices of aligning ourselves with Christ. Let us hold fast to Him, and let us hold fast to Him in love. You see, all of this is very practical. This isn't just pie in the sky, poetry. We will, uh, you know, singing kumbaya with each other or or uh, other love songs, whatever it may be. This is not that. This is reality, the reality of day-to-day Christianity, and it's a reality of our relationship together. Leaders and those that are led, and making sure that we're watching out for false teachers, and making sure that we're holding fast our leader, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow together and pray, and then I'm going to ask uh, if these ladies would respond in obedience and submission to my request to sing this special song. Let's bow together, please. Lord, we do thank you for our opportunity to love and care for each other. And we pray that we would let brotherly love continue, that we'd be hospitable to each other. We pray, Lord, that love would be evident in our homes and in our marriages. And we pray that love would be evident here in the church, in the responsibility or in the relationship between those that are led and the leaders. Lord, how we pray that you'll continue to give Grace Bible Church elders that are not egomaniacs, that are not power-hungry, but elders that are shepherding and caring and leading and take that responsibility knowing that they're accountable to God, would you grant us those kind of loving leaders who love and care for the congregation in this way and provide an example to them. We pray that you'd protect us from false teaching and protect us from those who would try to lead us astray into one extreme or another. Help us to hold fast to grace. Help us to hold fast to Christ. Help us to live strongly upon the word of God and speak it and and hold to it. And then, Lord, would you allow this congregation to continue to love their leaders? Would you allow them to continue to pray for, support, submit, obey, be a joy? Oh, Lord, I pray that we'd have loving leaders and a loving uh, congregation that is being led. And may, uh, may others in our community know that we're your disciples because of the love that we have for one another. In Jesus' name.